You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. As we study through the scripture verse by verse in an expository manner, as we are doing from time to time, it is helpful to step back and see the larger picture of where we've been and where we're going in our study. And our text today, verses 21 through 23, really brings us to the first major crossroads of the book of Colossians. This is going to be the first time that we shift to a major point. And so I'd like to briefly review what we've seen so far, because that'll show us why the verses we're going to look at today are so significant. Well, after greeting the church in verses 1 and 2, Paul the Apostle writes an extended thanksgiving section in verses 3 through 23. So you see the outline there that we put up several weeks ago when we started the series, but we've really been just digging into the opening thanksgiving, and there's several subunits that are in this. Paul begins by thanking God for the Colossians in verses 3 through 8. And as we looked at that text, we noticed how Paul's example of giving thanks shows us that we can be thankful for all things in all circumstances. Well, the secret to giving thanks in all circumstances is to view life with the eyes of faith, to look for what God is doing in the world, because the gospel is spreading, people are growing, souls are being reached. And if we look with eyes of faith around us, we can always give thanks because God is always at work. And then Paul shift, shifted to prayer in verses 9 through 14, and he models for us a, a biblical prayer, what praying according to the will of God looks like. And this is a, a tremendous prayer. I've used it in my own prayer life the last few weeks since we've studied it to guide my own asking and my own requesting. And that prayer at the end of it, in verses 12, 13, and 14, really spilled out into praise for God. Verse 12 begins with the, the action of giving thanks to the Father. Well, why? We talked about God acting dramatically and decisively through the death of Christ to completely and irreversibly change our identity, to change us. God sent Jesus to die on the cross to change us, to transform us. And in fact, we, we really lingered there over those verses and noted seven ways that our identity has been changed and fleshed out the implications of each one. The last couple of weeks, we've been in verses 15 through 20, and these verses really just soar with the glories of Christ. It presents Jesus as the crown jewel of the universe, the crown jewel of all creation, the crown jewel of the church. He's like a, a brilliant diamond that has an infinite number of facets that as we turn him over in our hand, we see the, the, the truth of, of his glory in a, in a brilliant way. He has preeminence over all things, and the challenge for us is to make sure that we are aligned with that, to, to give him preeminence in our lives, in our hearts. Well, at the end of verse 20, we read about Jesus reconciling all things. He made peace by shedding his blood on the cross. And the verses that we'll look at today, verses 21 through 23, continue this theme of reconciliation. And it doesn't just talk about reconciliation in a broad sense or in a doctrinal sense, Paul takes the truth of reconciliation and applies it to his audience. These three verses actually will link back to every major previous section. I don't have the time to show you that. But really, we could say that these three verses are the capstone of the opening Thanksgiving. 
Paul is driving to this point, praying for them, giving thanks for them, exalting the Lord Jesus, and then showing them the transformation that's taken place in their lives to set up the rest of the letter. And so the title of today's message is very simple, Reconciled. The main point of these three verses is very simple. God reconciled you. Your relationship to God depends on reconciliation. I'm going to use that word reconciliation quite a bit today. And this is one of those pictures of salvation, reconciliation, just like redemption is a picture of salvation or justification, redemption being being purchased out of slavery, justification being declared innocent in the court of law. Reconciliation is another picture of salvation, and it's a picture of peace being made between ancient enemies. And not just peace being made, but the enemies now become part of the family. Our rebellion against God has ended in a permanent peace has ensued an infinite peace in duration. Now, if you're like me, we tend to think of reconciliation in regards to our salvation only. Oh, right, I was reconciled to God through the death of his son. But what many Christians don't realize is that reconciliation defines them, defines you and I, even after salvation. This is Paul's emphasis in these three verses, to remind believers what reconciliation means for them, because Reconciliation has ongoing effects in our lives. It's not just a transaction where we swipe our credit card and move on. There are ongoing things that take place. In fact, Paul even argues that reconciliation defines us now. That our relationship to God depends on reconciliation even after salvation. It shapes how we think about ourselves and controls how we live. And I'd venture a guess that This is an area that that we don't think a lot about. In fact, if I brought the microphone down to you and walked up to you and said, can you give me one way that being reconciled to God had impacted your week last week, some of you would be leaving before I even got to the front step. (laughs) And I'm not saying that to judge you. I'm saying that to illustrate that we don't think about this a lot. And yet it has incredible implications for us. We need to understand how this aspect of salvation continues to affect every part of our life, every part of it, from our beliefs to our thoughts to our actions. The truths of reconciliation should define your Christian life. So let's ask a question. Well, how? How can this gospel truth of reconciliation define you? How can I, how can I understand it enough to let it shape the way I live? I think it's simple. By believing and rehearsing. The Christian life, in theory, is not difficult. We believe truth and we live truth out. Now, when we get to the living it out part, that's a lot more difficult. Because our sin nature dwells within us and it battles against us, Galatians 5. There's war between the flesh and the spirit. But in concept, we believe truth and we rehearse it and that transforms us. Romans 12, 1 and 2, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So how can the gospel truths of reconciliation define you? By believing these truths and then rehearsing them so that you practice what you believe. You have to know the truth for it to shape you. And I think there are three simple ways that we rehearse the truths about reconciliation. Three truths that have profound effect on our lives. Let's look at verse 21 to see the first way that we can rehearse the truth of reconciliation. 
And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. The first way is to remember your former condition, separated from God. And this is a common tact that Paul uses. He loves to remind believers of who they used to be, who they were before Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 is another place he does this. To remind them who they used to be and then who they are now. Here he describes who the Colossians once were with three phrases. And each phrase describes two groups of people. It describes who believers were before salvation, and it describes who unbelievers are right now. The first one is the word alienated or estranged. You were relationally estranged. And the emphasis is on emotional and relational distance. We use this word estrangement sometimes in the context of marriage. Uh, Two spouses become estranged. The husband and a wife sinned against one another. A married couple... If, if one cheated on the other one, there would be a tension, there'd be an estrangement, an alienation there. Now, Paul doesn't specify why they were estranged, but from Scripture we know that it's because of our sins. Isaiah 59, 2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. There is distance between us and God. Second, we had a hostile worldview. The next phrase is this, you were enemies in your mind. And the word enemy doesn't quite convey the the nature of the hostility against God. They hate him. They're at enmity with him. They're not just simply opposed to him. Now the word mind, there are several words for mind in the New Testament. Several Greek words that are translated into just the one English word, and each of them have a slightly different nuance. The word here that's translated mind, emphasizes a person's mindset, or we would say a person's worldview. A person's worldview. The way that unbelievers think, their entire conception of the world is hostile to God. And I don't think I need to prove this to you. All you gotta do is read the news or go listen to the top 10 songs on Spotify and you'll see that they're glorying in things that are anti-God. The world hates God. It loves darkness rather than light. And their hatred spills out into evil deeds. You formerly practiced an evil lifestyle. And this is the phrase, by wicked works. Hatred comes out in all sorts of evil deeds because the scriptures are very clear here that our deeds are an evidence or an outflow of our hearts. Uh, A couple weeks ago in our Sunday school time, we, we read Mark 7, 20 through 23. What comes out of a man, Jesus says, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts and adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Wicked behavior is the evidence of a heart that's hostile toward God. Well, you put these three things together and it's a pretty vile picture, isn't it? And yet that picture describes every single human being apart from God, apart from salvation in Christ. And so let me talk to believers first. If you're a believer in Jesus, this is who you used to be. There's a big praise God after that. You were God's enemy. 
You rebelled against God and fought against his rule. Your worldview was darkened. Your values were anti-God. You loved sin. You practiced evil. You violated God's law over and over again. And you may have been cultured. You may have been mannered. You may not have done every single sin. But ultimately, you were alienated, hostile, and full of evil. Well, that's a really negative picture, isn't it? (laughs) What good does thinking like this do? Well, this reminder should cause you to elevate Christ and lower yourself. You elevate Christ and lower yourself. Remembering the depths of your sin is humbling. It's uncomfortable. We don't like doing it. And God doesn't put these things in Scripture to make us grovel as if we had to do penance or something to earn his favor. He does this to remind us that we have no good in ourselves. What good did you have that you could stand before God and say, hey, God, I'm pretty good in this area. What do you have that you didn't receive? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Jesus taught us that the first beatitude is to be poor in spirit, which means that we're acknowledging our spiritual poverty, our utter ruin apart from Christ. And as we rehearse the gospel and preach it to ourselves, we can't skip over our sinfulness because if we do, we, we cheapen Christ's sacrifice. The whole reason Jesus came to earth was to save sinners. And as we've seen just a few months ago in a story about a sinful woman versus a Pharisee, those that recognize the the weight and the depth of their sin love Jesus more. You You were not close to salvation. You were far off. Ephesians 2 says, but Jesus has brought you near. He spanned the gap for you. How does this then, let's shift for a moment, how does this apply to people who have never received Christ? If you're not a believer in Jesus, this description is your current relationship to God. You are estranged and hostile still. You have no relationship with God because you haven't been reconciled. And I mentioned last week that many people have a totally inaccurate assumption about God. Here it is. God is favorable toward me just as I am. That's totally inaccurate. That wrong belief leads to conclusions or thoughts like this. As long as I do good in the world, when I die, God will weigh my good and bad and see that, yeah, I've done some bad things, but they're they're minor, and ultimately my good outweighs my bad, and he'll let me into heaven. It's wrong. Or this, God is like a heavenly grandpa who always has a twinkle in his eye and, and fritters his time away with odd habits and eccentric things. He smiles at me and pats me on the head. There's no way a God like that would send anyone to hell. It's wrong scripturally. Or God is just blustering when the Bible talks about divine judgment. God's a God of love, which means that everyone will get into heaven eventually. This type of thinking significantly misrepresents both the nature of God and and our sinful condition. Fallen humanity is not pretty good and we can slide in, you know, maybe just safe ahead of the the throw. Fallen humanity has rebelled against God. We have declared war on him. Our first parents declared war when they plucked that fruit from the tree. 
And they said, I want to be like God, knowing good and evil. We often swear allegiance to anything and everything that opposes him. Just look at what our culture worships. It's, it's disgusting what they worship. And so if you're without Christ, you need to understand that you can't fight against God and live your entire life alienated from him and then expect to receive a royal welcome in heaven when you die. Instead, the Bible is very clear. Repent of your ways and put your faith in a crucified Savior. The only way to be at peace with God is to accept his pathway for peace, which God provided through Jesus. Now, as we shift to to major point number two, for believers, this transaction that brought about reconciliation leads to, to joy and gratitude. It leads you to appreciate your present situation. But for unbelievers, those of you I'm just talking to right now, your enmity does not have to be permanent. It can change into peace when you receive the reconciliation Jesus offers. Look at verses 21 and 22. Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Reconciliation is, only comes through Jesus. The scriptures are very, very clear. It's not Jesus is a good option or the best option. He's the only option. The main idea of this section is the verb, he has reconciled. So let's go back to verses 19 and 20 and see what reconciliation means. Jesus is the one who reconciles us. Verse 19 says that he is fully God and fully man. The fullness of God dwelled bodily in him. Verse 20 shows us how Jesus accomplished this reconciliation. He made peace, and he made peace by dying on the cross, through the blood of the cross. That's also repeated in verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death. Twice in three verses, Paul emphasizes the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Well, what does reconciliation do? It makes peace. And so we conclude that Jesus' death on the cross was the peace plan. Without Jesus making peace before God, there would be no way that we could become part of God's family. Our sin has separated us from God. As God's enemies, we've rebelled against him. And so our sin places us under God's judgment. And it's not, it's not an unfair judgment. It's just Peace can only be accomplished if sin is paid for and justice is satisfied. Peace can only be accomplished if sin is paid for and justice is satisfied. And that's exactly what God did. By sending Jesus to the cross, he showed his love and his kindness and his mercy toward us. The winning side made the sacrifice to allow the rebels to come home unpunished. As Pastor Jerry said a few moments ago, before we sang his robes for mine, we got the better end of that deal. Absolutely. I, as though he embraced and welcomed home, 
Isaiah 53, 5 is the very heart of the gospel of Isaiah. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. This is another way the Bible teaches us who we really are. If, if, we, if we were kind of favorable with God and we weren't that bad, would, would God have had to send Jesus to die in your place on the cross? That would have been completely unnecessary. But if you really are an enemy of God and under his judgment, then Christ's substitutionary death is your only hope. He took your place. His death brings peace. And I can't communicate to you the gravity and the urgency of responding to the gospel. And I know I may be only speaking to a handful of people today. I had a very uh, strange experience this week. Uh, Normally I set aside Thursdays for prayer and study of the word and get a a bulk of the sermon done uh, on Thursday. And, and this week, I finished, I came home, and Kate said, how'd it go today? I said, I finished at the same place I started. She said, oh, not good. <laughs> there was spiritual warfare taking place. Every time we study to prepare and, and to preach the word, there, there's going to be warfare because we're doing a spiritual thing. But it was especially intense to an extent that, in my short life, I've never felt before. And, and as I prayed and actually went for a jog to clear my head. I, I just said, Lord, why is it so intense today? Why is the battle so strong? And the Lord made it very clear. He didn't speak to me. I didn't hear an audible voice, okay? But there was just a very clear, like he had written it on the page in front of me, that there are people here today that need the gospel. And that there are here, I don't know who you are. I don't know how long you've been coming. All I know is God redirected this sermon for you. And you need to be reconciled. And there's a, there's a beautiful truth that though your soul hangs in the balance today between life and death, life can be yours because Jesus died. I don't know who God is speaking to, but as 2 Corinthians 5 says, I implore you for Christ's sake, on his behalf, be reconciled to God. Turn away from your sin. It will never satisfy you. It'll never give you what you want. Turn to the Savior who instead waits with open arms and nail-pierced hands. He paid the price for your peace. Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You can do that right here, right now, as God speaks to you. When Jesus reconciles us to God, we are completely changed. Whereas a moment ago, you were God's enemy, now you are presentable to God. That's the immediate effect of this reconciliation. And this is a major reason why believers can appreciate your present situation because reconciliation makes you presentable toward God. To be reconciled means Jesus presents you before the Father. So the distance that marked you as God's enemy, the alienation and the estrangement, 
is exchanged for intimacy and closeness and nearness. And that leads to two major realities. First, you have a new identity. One of the things that now is true of you in Christ is that you are reconciled. Never to be unreconciled. Never to be put aside again. There are probably more than three implications of this, but briefly, I just want to show three ways that this affects you. First, if you're, if you're reconciled, you have peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. None of us lives perfectly, <laughs> even after salvation. Sin is still a battle. But you never have to fear God's judgment again. Because you're at peace with him. You're part of the family. Your relationship to him is characterized by nearness and peace. And, and there's a number of passages in scripture, Philippians 4, Isaiah 26, that talk about if you need peace in your life, God gives it to you. John 14, my peace I give you, Jesus said, not as the world gives, my peace I give to you. Isaiah 26, 3, he will keep you in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him because he trusts in him. If you have peace with God, you can experience his peace. But second, you can draw near to God. This is one of the major points of emphasis in the book of Hebrews because Jesus has purchased salvation for us and he is our high priest interceding before the Father. We have access to God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. If you're a believer in Jesus, you, you will sin. But when you sin, you don't have to go hide in a corner and pretend that God is angry with you eternally because he's not. You're at peace with him. You can draw near to him and ask for cleansing. You can have your fellowship restored. You never have to, to wait three or four days because it just feels like that's what I should do. You can have immediate access back to God. Third, you can make peace with others. Ephesians 2, 13 through 16 is a whole message in itself, so I'll try to keep this brief, but, but the only way for people, for human beings to be at peace with one another is through Jesus. These two verses, he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Originally, this is talking about Jews and Gentiles, where Christ died on the cross to, to bring all people under his headship. We are all part of his body. And in our culture, the last three or four years, racial tensions have flared up. It's been at the forefront of our nation's consciousness. But of all people in the world, Christians see past skin color. Why? Because our, our differences are literally just skin deep. The most binding thing amongst us is the fact that we're sinners in need of a savior. It doesn't matter what color you are or what language you speak. It just matters if Jesus is your savior. The world has hijacked the idea of reconciliation as they seek to make things, to, to make wrong things right. The sad reality is there's only one person who can reconcile all things and his name's Jesus, but the world doesn't want him. The solution for racism is not affirmative action or protests and riots and not reparations. It's the gospel of Jesus. Jesus 
brings peace to all people through his death on the cross. And he gathers a diverse people into one body. The church is the only organization in the entire world where it doesn't matter what you look like and where you came from. Our Savior has broken down the wall of hostility and made peace. So because we're reconciled, we have peace with God, we have nearness to God, we have peace with other people. But the other major implication is that when we are presentable to God, we have a new position, a new standing before God. And this is the, this is the, the route that Paul goes in verse 22, to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. How can you be holy, blameless, and above reproach? Do you feel holy and blameless and above reproach most days? How does this take place? It's because of our union with Jesus. Because we're united to Christ, we receive the benefits of his standing. He is holy and blameless and above reproach before God, and now we are as well. Now, in the original language, all three of these words are alliterated. They begin with the letter A or the letter Alpha. All three terms are emphasizing the purity that we have before God. The word holy is familiar to us. It means to be set apart to God, morally perfect and righteous. It's used of him throughout Scripture. The seraphim in Isaiah 6, Revelation 4 and 5, proclaim holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. To be blameless is to have no defects or blemishes, to be morally spotless, 1 Peter 1.19 uses this word to describe Jesus being a lamb without blemish or spot. To be above reproach makes you not able to be accused of wrong. You are free from accusations. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see a person steeped in sin's pollution. He sees the holiness of Jesus. He doesn't see all of your defects and failures. He sees a perfect son or daughter without blemish or spot. He doesn't see all the things you've done wrong and have a list of accusations against you. He nailed that list to the cross, Colossians 2 says. It's over. You are above reproach. That's how God views you. The natural and logical follow-up is this. Does your lifestyle match your standing? What do I mean? Well, there's a principle here. The Christian walk is a process of living consistently with our position, matching our lifestyle, how we behave, with our status, with what's true of us. And this principle actually shows up throughout life. It, it's actually woven into the very fabric of life. Let me give you one example, one illustration. Take marriage, for example. When a couple gets married, they immediately become husband and wife before God and before man. Their status is now married. But are there ever moments where they still think and live like single people? Come on. You've been there. We had this in the first year of our marriage, Kate and I. I, uh, I was in seminary, and that meant a lot of studying books, which uh, if you know me, that's not a bad thing. I enjoyed that. So she went out with one of her friends, and if you know her, that's about right too. And she went out and said she was going to come back later that night, whatever, fine. Well, she texted me and said uh, she was headed out to go pick up some furniture together on Craigslist. Does anyone still do Craigslist? This was about 10 years ago, so that's what, that's what we did. And I said, okay, no problem. And the hour started to pass, 9 o'clock, 
getting like, okay, where is she here? 10 o'clock, okay, I'm getting a little nervous here now. So I text her, no response. I'm scared. Because the last thing she said is, I'm going in the dark with a girlfriend of mine to pick up furniture from a total stranger on, on Craigslist. And for all I know, she's dead in a ditch somewhere. Well, she waltzed back in after 11 p.m. and had a, had a great time with her friend. And I'm over there praying and fasting in the corner, you know. <laughs> and it, it's a funny moment. We still laugh about it. We had a good laugh about it yesterday. And there was a combination of an overprotective young husband with a carefree wife who was used to being single. And yes, as you can tell from the story, she's the fun one in the relationship, okay? I'll give her credit for that. The issue is that in our first year of marriage, we were still matching our thinking and our living with our status of being married. Your new position in Christ has to be lived out in practice. And I'll add, this is not drudgery. It was not, oh, well, we're married now. I guess we have to tell each other what we're doing. I guess I have to spend time with you. No, the whole reason we got married was to spend time with one another. When we're saved, spending time with our Lord, walking according to his law is not a drudgery. Living in a way that matches our position is the delight of every true Christian. And we're bad at it. We're not great at it. We're growing in it, but it should be our goal and our delight. And it, interestingly, this outworking of our position is what Paul refers to in verse 23. Here he calls reconciled people to continue in the faith. Because being reconciled to God has ongoing effects. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, at first glance, it seems like that the words, if indeed, mean that our reconciliation is based on our faithfulness to Christ. What do I mean? He has reconciled us if we continue in the faith. That would make our salvation or eternal security dependent on my effort. That's not what the scriptures are teaching. Other parts of Scripture, including this very chapter, verses 12 through 14 of Colossians 1, make it clear that both salvation and our eternal security are based on the work of Christ, not on your faithfulness. Yet, in Scripture, these truths about the faithfulness of God and eternal security in Christ, these truths do not prevent Scripture from warning us to hold fast to Christ. Hebrews has five or six warning passages. This is a warning passage. Warning passages like this communicate to us the danger of falling away from Christ. And when we read a passage like this, we tend to focus on the question of what happens if a person falls away? Were they truly saved to begin with or did they lose their salvation? That's not why the author wrote the warning. The warning is here to remember, to remind us That abandoning Jesus is spiritually disastrous, so don't do it. You don't have to worry about your status if you don't fall away. Hold fast to Christ. Cling to him. The warning motivates spiritual faithfulness. Paul warns us here that if we do not continue in the faith, 
we will have no confidence before God that we are reconciled. The evidence of a changed life is that a believer continues in the faith because true salvation produces spiritual fruit. Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What is in our hearts comes out. If our heart is good, there will be good fruit that comes out. True salvation produces spiritual fruit. So why do we continue in the faith? Well, we continue in the faith to be spiritually anchored. Paul uses two words to communicate spiritual stability. Grounded and steadfast. The word grounded was actually used to describe the process of laying a foundation for a building. If it wasn't grounded well, what would happen to it? Eventually, it would fall over. Think of the wise man and the foolish man, right? The foolish man did not ground his house well because he built the foundation on sand. To be steadfast is to be firmly established, to be secure. And put together, we see that spiritual stability comes when we live out our faith. Second Peter 1 affirms the same thing. That if we grow in our faith and are walking with him, we will have confidence before him. When we live out our faith, we will be stable. The believers who are unstable are the ones who are double-minded. James 1, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. The believers that commit themselves to Christ and follow him as best they can by his grace, those are the ones that grow more and more stable. If you meet a believer who is constantly fluctuating up and down and they're going through crises after crises, that probably means they're not walking in the faith. They need to be stable and steadfast. Maybe that describes you. You're thinking, eh, I tend to be a little bit more up and down than I probably should. Don't be discouraged. Grow in your faith. Continue in what you've learned so that you can have spiritual stability. Well, how do you grow in the faith? How do you continue? By being rooted in the gospel. The way that we continue in the faith is by not shifting away from the hope of the gospel. Because the gospel that saves us continues to bear fruit in our lives. Jerry Bridges, 30, 40 years ago, coined the phrase, I think it was him, to preach the gospel to yourself. And it's a little bit funny to our ears because sometimes we think, well, I don't need to be saved all over again. But we rehearse the truths of the gospel because it deepens our walk with the Lord. We're reminded of who we used to be. We're reminded of Christ's sacrifice, and that motivates us to live for him in the future. That's literally what this passage is doing. Verse 21, this is who you used to be. Verse 22, this is what Jesus did. Verse 23, continue in it. Rehearse the gospel. The gospel of grace is what has connected us to the vine who is Jesus. And to continue to benefit from it, we stay fixed to him. Now, the end of verse 23 has a bunch of descriptions about it was preached to every creature and Paul became a minister. And that, those phrases are really transitioning us to the next major section of the letter. So both for theme and time's sake, let's save that till next week. We'll pick up right there. To conclude then, I'd like to share a moving story from missionary history that illustrates the gravity and the implications of reconciliation. And I acknowledge again that there are two audiences of people here. There are those that have been reconciled and you are now thinking through how reconciliation defines you. But there's also a small group of people, maybe only a single person or two, that you've never been reconciled. Don and Carol Richardson 
moved to western New Guinea in 1962 to minister among a people group known as the Sawi, S-A-W-I. The Sawi were primitive cannibals. Their culture held treachery and deceit to be the greatest virtue. They would intentionally befriend other people from other villages only to later kill them and eat them. The greater the deceit, the more honored the hero was. In fact, when the Richardsons told the story of the gospel and they told about Jesus' death on the cross, the Sawi people celebrated Judas as the hero of the story. That's how backward their worldview was. They celebrated wickedness as virtue and evil as good. And the Richardsons were ministering to two different Sawi villages close to one another, and the villages were at war with one another. Several months went by, and Don and Carol announced to the people that they were going to leave if they couldn't find peace. If the fighting didn't stop, they were going to leave because it was too difficult for them to minister. And the Sawi enjoyed the benefits of Westerners being with them, steal tools and, and, and dignity and, and that sort of thing. They didn't want them to go. So the two villages declared that they would make peace. And the Richardsons were skeptical of this. They said, how in the world are you going to make peace with your worldview? And the answer was through a peace child. The next morning, one man named Kayo took his only son and brought him to the other village. He called out another man and gave his son to this man and said, you will watch over him. And the man promised to do it. The man received Kayo's child, promised to be the peacemaker in his village in case of a dispute, and then took Kayo's name. The act was repeated. Another person came from that village so that each village had a peace child living among them. And as long as the peace child lived, the villages would not fight. The Richardsons had a spirit-filled moment, and they used this analogy, this redemptive analogy to explain the gospel, because God had sent his peace child to live amongst us, to a rebellious people, to stop the fighting, and better than any child they could exchange between villages, Jesus would never die. His peace was permanent. Though humanity was separated from God, Jesus lived among us, died, and rose again. And he keeps the peace between God and men. And over time, many Sawi people understood the gospel and received reconciliation with God. And I'm assuming none of you are primitive cannibals, so don't get hung up on that. But no matter who you are, your need for reconciliation is just as important. Without Jesus, the peace child, you will never be reconciled to God. And yet here today, in this moment, you are looking at the beauty of the gospel in its fullest form. Be reconciled to God. Would you bow with me for prayer? I don't do this often, but Obviously, this week was a little unusual, and the Lord is, is moving and speaking here. If you are without Christ, 
and are convicted of your need of a Savior, would you just maybe lift your head or lift your hand and acknowledge me? And I would encourage you to, to go find one of us after. I'll be in the back. Pastor Jerry will be in the front. Pastor Addison's over by the bookstore. Come talk to one of us. We'd love to show you from Scripture how you can be born again. For those of us who are believers, let's rejoice in what Christ has done. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his sacrifice that brings us peace. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make him known. May God bless you as you follow him.